welcome to this edition of Tech on Fire with Blaze. I'm Blaze Stewart, architect at Winelect. And today we're going to be looking at what's new on Microsoft Azure. And then for our main story, we'll be taking a look at a conspiracy theory involving Microsoft compatriot Bill Gates and how that relates to COVID-19. But first, let's dive in and talk about what's new on Microsoft Azure. Azure. There are three broad categories about some new features available on Azure or features that have been in preview, and those relate to containers, Azure storage, and Azure functions. Now, related to containers, there were several announcements made. Uh, two were made to Azure Red Hat OpenShift. Now, Azure Red Hat OpenShift is the is Red Hat OpenShift on Azure. It's maintained by Microsoft and by Red Hat, and it offers OpenShift as a service and its managed infrastructure. And uh, OpenShift itself is a Kubernetes version that has value-added services from Red Hat that relate to uh, testing and software development and, and uh, things for hosting code as well as hosting the applications in a one-stop shop fashion. And that's what OpenShift provides for you. And they announced this week that OpenShift 4 is available through Azure Red Hat for OpenShift. And they also announced that Azure monitoring for containers is available on that particular version of OpenShift. So those are the two announcements related to Azure Red Hat OpenShift. The rest of them pertain to Azure Kubernetes services. And there's a couple of announcements here about some features that GA this week. First, uh, managed identity support is available for Azure Kubernetes services. Now managed identities gives you the ability to have the, uh, something like a service principle wrapped up in an Azure resource and that is managed by Azure Resource Manage Manager, but it exists as a, a piece of Azure Active Directory. So the resource is created and maintained as a resource in the Azure portal or through ARM templates or through the Azure CLI. So when you create a managed identity, it will create that resource in the Azure resource management system, but it also has a uh, identity that is represented in Azure AD. So when you remove that managed identity, it removes it from Azure AD. And this is a nice uh, feature that allows you to treat an identity as a resource within the context of Azure rather than to have maintain those separately in Azure AD and then having to bring those into the Azure uh, resource manager context. Now related to AKS as well, Azure Advisor integration was made available to AKS and this is generally available. So Azure Advisor is a free service from Microsoft that allows you to look at your Azure Advisor and get some basic security recommendations. It'll make things to help improve costs. It'll help make uh, things uh, uh, related to costs about overing, over provisioning VMs or under provisioning VMs. And it will make things related to uh, security recommendations like you need to maybe turn on two-factor authentication or maybe you need to uh, turn off these ports in your Azure uh, network security groups and those kinds of basic things that are uh, good practices to do on Azure. And they've made that available to Azure Kubernetes services as well. Related to Azure Kubernetes services, and privacy, Microsoft introduced Azure Private Link for AKS as well. Now, Private Link is only available to the API servers on Azure. Now, the typically the way that AKS is set up on Azure is you have the API servers that are managed by Microsoft and you never touch those. It's a free uh, service provided by Microsoft so that you don't really have to uh, maintain you know, the management clusters for an AKS cluster. But those in the past have historically been uh, publicly exposed endpoints that could be reached by anyone. But it was a secure channel, not a private channel. 
uh, it was a public channel that was secured rather than a private channel that was secured. But now they've through private link, what you can do is stand those API endpoints up as a private IP address on an Azure VNet. So it's an additional layer of security and that will allow you to interact with the API management uh, on your VNet as if it were a private endpoint versus a public endpoint. Uh, and then you can interact with Kube, the Kube, uh, Kubernetes command line against those uh, endpoints. And lastly, related to Azure Kubernetes services, uh, Windows containers for AKS are now generally available. This is a huge announcement because it finally means that Windows containers can be run on Azure Kubernetes services. And this is this this has been in preview for quite some time now, and they GA'd it this week. So that really brings the ability to run Windows workloads on AKS now, not just Linux workloads in a supported, generally available fashion. So now you can have the both of these available and uh, it will be interesting to see how this uh, feature evolves in the AKS uh, context. Two announcements related to Azure backups came out this week, and the first one was related to Azure File Share Snapshot Management, and this allows you to do uh, snapshot management uh, against Azure File Shares, which basically means that you can take a snapshot of the file share, and then and then if you need to go back to a snapshot at some point in time, you can restore to that particular snapshot. And this is more of a delta against previous snapshots, so it's not taking a full uh, image of the entire file file share rather just looking for the changes and then uh, doing the incrementals using a snapshot management with Azure backup. So a new feature there. Uh, also with Azure cross-region restores with Azure virtual machines, you can use Azure backups to backup your virtual machines and then restore those to an additional region. So this is more of a hot, cold configuration that you might have uh, inside of Azure for doing disaster recovery scenarios to other regions in addition to the other uh, supported uh, approaches to this using VM replication uh, from one region to another, uh, which is more of a hot warm type uh, setup. And the, or, or if you're trying to do hot, hot configurations, doing uh, maintaining two uh, active active uh, sites uh, in two different Azure regions. So this is another option that plays into disaster recovery whenever you're doing uh, virtual machines on Azure. Now related to Azure Functions, uh, Azure announced that Functions now supports Java 8, and you can use Java 8 to write uh, Azure functions on the Linux platform. So this is now in preview. So that should be GA'd once it goes out of preview when, and that could be uh, a long lead time or short lead time, depending on how uh, many uh, bugs or features that need to be added to that particular product. For our main story today, we're going to be taking a look at Bill Gates and the conspiracy theories surrounding him as it relates to the coronavirus and COVID-19. To be even doing a piece on this is really giving it more credit than it actually deserves, but many of these conspiracy theories have gotten even the attention of the mainstream media, and it's almost laughable to even think about some of these things that have been proposed in these conspiracy theories, but I wanted to take a look at this one in particular because it does involve Bill Gates, and he is obviously tightly uh, coupled to the Microsoft space and uh, Microsoft being the company he started has been the source of his wealth and his ability to actually do something as it relates to curing COVID-19 and looking for solutions that can help people accordingly. 
So where did this conspiracy theory actually start? It's hard to say exactly where it started, but the origins of this conspiracy theory could probably be traced back to a 2015 TED Talk that Bill Gates gave on a pandemic that could potentially happen. And he was looking at the Ebola outbreak in Africa, wherein numerous people were infected with another virus and died. And epidemiologists were working on the response to that. And Bill Gates was a part of that. Uh, the Ebola outbreak did not become a pandemic. It was largely regional and did have implications outside the region, but it was principally concentrated in a region in Africa wherein numerous people were infected and died from that disease. And as a result of that, he did a TED Talk where he discussed the potential of a, an outbreak a, at a, on a global scale, and he gave dire warning against this potential pandemic wherein he said the world was definitely not prepared for a pandemic should ever one occur. Here's an outbreak from that particular TED Talk where Bill Gates does give the warning that I mentioned. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Not missiles, but microbes. Uh, you can have a virus where people feel well enough while they're infectious that they get on a plane or they go to a market. The source of the virus could be a natural epidemic like Ebola, or it could be bioterrorism. And so there are things that would literally make things a thousand times worse. Now, naturally, a number of conspiracy theorists have latched on to this particular TED Talk and have quote-mined it and taken excerpts out of it to promote the idea that Bill Gates himself was involved in the development of a coronavirus that would ultimately infect the world and he could have his way with it. Now, depending on what version of the conspiracy theory you look at, they almost all include some aspect of 5G technology, the latest iteration in mobile technology, wherein 5G is installed and this technology somehow is used to suppress the immune system to allow a virus to spread more easily or to magically create the virus inside of people. And this relies on some spurious correlations between places where 5G has been installed widely already and places where the virus seems to be growing at a fast rate as well. And again, this is correlation contributing to causation, which is a statistical fallacy. But in any case, most of the versions of the conspiracy theory have something about 5G. Next, they'll go on to say how Bill Gates has worked with a lab to create this virus. Now, this is usually done with some kind of spurious evidence that is somehow cloak and dagger Bill Gates working with a lab in China to create a virus and that the Chinese government has been covering this up when leaks have come out of Wuhan or other parts of China that were trying to expose the virus actually having been something that was created in a lab rather than something that was being studied in a lab. And then they will rely on some kind of dubious bait and switch tactic that will take you know, being studied in a lab to imply that a virus was created in a lab and then use some kind of cover-up story from the uh, Chinese government as a evidence for that. Next, the conspirators will imply that the WHO and Bill Gates were 
using this information as a way to allow the virus to spread from uh, Wuhan, China to other parts of the globe. And it typically goes something like this, wherein the WHO originally downplayed the virus, but as it became more and more prevalent and more and more people were infected with it outside of that region, that the WHO was changing their story and then was looking to usurp that and become a leader in the uh, fight against this. And that has somehow a way of influencing Bill Gates's power over the world or something along those lines. Now, some versions of this story have made it all the way up to the president of the United States, wherein the president pulled funding for the WHO in the middle of the pandemic. And Bill Gates himself even said that was as dangerous as it sounds. And that has been more fuel for the fire that Bill Gates and the WHO were working to allow this virus to spread intentionally and that they are somehow working together to use this as a way to gain some kind of political power or become king of the world or something along those lines. The next plank in this conspiracy theory typically involves Bill Gates coming up with some kind of virus and becoming the hero that saves the day. And in this conspiracy theory, they capitalize on the fact that Bill Gates has gone on record as saying he wants to invest billions of dollars in developing a vaccine for the virus. And he's currently pursuing, I think, seven different uh, possible vaccines with the hope that one of those vaccines will become the one vaccine that will allow the eradication of the coronavirus going forward. And the conspiracy theories latch onto this in that Bill Gates is the one that has the power and the money to do this and that he is the one that is promoting this virus as so that he can work with the vaccine companies that are big pharma companies and agencies like the WHO to in inoculate everybody with his particular vaccine. Then the final plank in this particular conspiracy theory typically goes something like this, where Bill Gates has this malicious intent to inject everybody that has the vaccine with some kind of microchip or RFID that is a digital certificate saying that they were inoculated with the vaccine and therefore are no longer contagious or something like that so that people can be tracked wherever they go and that this RFID or digital certificate or microchip can be used as a way of tracking and controlling people and ultimately becoming a means to enable a one world government and a one world currency or some kind of nonsense along those lines. The spurious motivation behind this comes from an interview that Bill Gates did with Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN, wherein Dr. Gupta asks $10 billion over the next 10 years to make it the year of the vaccine. What do you mean by that exactly? And Bill Gates responds, and I quote, over this decade, we believe unbelievable progress can be made in inventing new vaccines and making sure they get out to all the children who need them. We only need about six or seven more, and then you will have all the tools to reduce childhood death, reduce population growth, and everything, the sustainability, the environment, benefit from that, end quote. Now, what this is implying is that when Bill Gates said that he wants to put vaccines out there to, quote, reduce population growth, has been interpreted as population control, wherein Bill Gates wants to control the population and he wants to maybe in some cases reduce the population of the earth or something along those lines. What Bill Gates is really talking about is bringing in to check population growth in places where it is on exponential curves that is unsustainable rather than uh, creating a 
population control mechanism wherein he wants to actually control populations and or some nonsense like that so in this case the motivation was again quote mine from something that bill gates said now this is but one of many conspiracy theories out there related to covid19 and i know a number of people that have been promoting this particular conspiracy theory personally as well as many other ones that are related to this particular virus now this one of course got the attention of the mainstream media but there are numerous other ones out there and I was curious as to why something like COVID-19 would cause a spike in the number of conspiracy theories, at least from my perception that there was a spike in the number of conspiracy theories that are out there. I really don't have any data to back that up, but it just seems to be the case that around this virus and the environment that it has created, that there are just a plethora of conspiracy theories out there. And I wanted to understand why a pandemic might trigger the creation of many different kinds of conspiracies that are circulating around on the internet, out there on social media, wherever they might be. I think this starts with the anatomy of a conspiracy theory, wherein you have a conspirator that comes up with some kind of explanation for a event that is that is going on. And the conspiracies are typically isolated to particular communities that promote those conspiracies. And then tangentially, with anybody that knows a conspirator, they will probably get an earful of that conspiracy theory at some point if they interact with that individual for any given length of time, especially if they're family or friends that one might be close to. Now, a conspiracy theory typically works by offering some kind of explanation for an event or situation that invokes a conspiracy by a sinister or powerful actor, such as a political figure, a government, a large corporation, or someone like a billionaire. And these rely on many spurious connections between the agents themselves and other agents that are out there so that these conspiracies aren't a single individual, but a nexus of individuals working with other agencies to some grand scheme that has some kind of grand end to create some kind of that political gain, some kind of world government, some kind of one world currency, some kind of control that is somehow going to be enacted over the entire world population for some nefarious reason. Now, conspiracy theories typically take on this element of using the connections of individuals to other individuals or other agencies that are political in nature or powerful in nature as evidence of the particular conspiracy, such as Bill Gates' connection to the WHO or Bill Gates' connection to some kind of pharmaceutical company where he's in trying to develop some kind of vaccine for the particular virus that he's fighting now, which is coronavirus. Connections in and of themselves are not evidence for a conspiracy theory. They're used to promote the conspiracy theory because of the relationships that exist there. However, it's what happens next that really makes a conspiracy theory the conspiracy theory that it is. And that has to do with how it handles information when it comes to both promoting the conspiracy theory and handling objections to the conspiracy theory. Now, the first line of evidence that's typically offered in support of conspiracy theories is some kind of evidence of 
propaganda that is usually used to support a more conventional understanding of a particular phenomenon or problem. And they will say that the evidence is coming from the agents that are trying to promote this particular conspiracy, be it the, the powerful billionaire, the big pharmaceutical company, the government agency, the non-government agency, or, or something along those lines, wherein they are providing some kind of data to the public in order to brainwash the public through some kind of propaganda campaign. And the conspirators will interpret that mass dissemination of evidence or data as some kind of brainwashing attempt and therefore use that as evidence for a conspiracy. Now, this does get rather circular in the approach, but it is oftentimes used as a means to explain the reason why many people buy into a particular set of facts rather than believe the conspiracy theory uh, itself and whatever data that they might be using to promote that particular conspiracy theory. A second line of reasoning that's often given in support of conspiracy theories goes something like this, wherein you have the absence of evidence and that is interpreted as evidence for the conspiracy theory because the malicious actors, be it the billionaire, the government agency, the, the big pharmaceutical company is going about doing a massive job of covering up any kind of leaks that would otherwise expose the conspiracy. So the lack of evidence for the conspiracy is interpreted as evidence for the conspiracy. And that really doesn't really add up a whole lot because there is no way to affirm or deny that. Even so, combined with the first line of evidence where the massive amounts of evidence against a conspiracy, that would be the more conventional explanation, combined with the lack of evidence in support of the uh, conspiracy theory, really does a good job of essentially inoculating the conspiracy theory against falsification because you can neither uh, prove that the conspiracy theory is true because of the alleged lack of evidence for it. And you can't disprove it because the evidence that would be otherwise against it uh, does not really work because it's so-called propaganda. So conspiracy theories by their nature are really uh unfalsifiable um, because there is no way to affirm or deny them. A third line of reasoning that is often given in defense of conspiracy theories typically goes something like this, wherein there will be perceived problems with the conventional explanation, and then these are interpreted as evidence for the conspiracy theory. Now, one example of this in recent weeks around COVID-19 typically goes like this, wherein the models that were used to predict the spread of COVID-19 have failed to produce 100% or even moderately successful uh, predictions under that particular model's assumptions. And the conspirators will then use this to cast doubt on the conventional explanation and then use that as a springboard to promote a given conspiracy theory. Now, the most you could say with the problems with models is that there are problems with the models and that they don't accurately predict anything with whatever assumptions they're baked in. So you can say that maybe the assumptions were flawed, but that in no way implies that there is a conspiracy that is going on with the particular agents that are involved with it. So it's suffice to say that the ultimate result of a conspiracy theory is that really there is no evidence for it. It's really something that has to be believed on faith and has to be taken at face value from the person promoting the particular conspiracy theory. And any line of reasoning that would go in support of it really doesn't add up to 
evidence in the conventional understanding of the word evidence rather it requires that somebody just rely on spurious and dubious connections between agents and maybe their intents behind those agents in order to promote a particular end that that agent might have now, given the nature of conspiracy theories, I also wanted to understand really why conspiracy theories flourish and why would they flourish even more so in COVID-19. And as I started looking into this, the, the science of conspiracy theories really was a fascinating read for me. And uh, most of it comes out of psychological uh, science. And uh, the people that are doing this kind of research really do a good job at trying to categorize the kinds of beliefs that people have have and the reasons why that people might have those beliefs uh, as it relates to the psychology that goes into the formation of beliefs as well as the environment in which these beliefs are formed. And COVID-19 really did create an environment for these to form and to flourish because of some of the categories related to why people actually believe and create conspiracy theories. One piece of research that I found that was fairly interesting came out of the Journal for Current Directions in Psychological Science, and it was put out by a British psychologist named Karen Douglas and her colleagues. And in this research, the researchers outlined three broad categories for reasons why someone might want to create or believe a conspiracy theory. The first category is the desire for understanding and certainty, and this is amplified when there are things that are uncertain and when events occur that are uncertain. And certainly with COVID-19, we have seen uh, a lot of uncertainty birth as a result of this virus. Where did it come from? How quickly is it going to spread? How many people are being infected? What impact is it going to have on an individual's daily life? How's it going to impact the economy? Uh, and all these kinds of questions that emerged once the virus spread from the immediate region in Wuhan, China, and then went abroad and started impacting uh, Europe and North America and other parts of the globe. And the uncertainty that this brews in, in these certain times, especially with things like lockdowns and uh, un undetermined deadlines for these kinds of things, has created a lot of these kinds of questions in the, in the, in the heads of people. And they start to uh, speculate, which is the, the breeding grounds for uh, wanting to find explanations. And some of those result in these kinds of conspiracy theories. The second category would be a desire for control and security and out of control circumstances promote the desire to insulate oneself from these kinds of existential threats. COVID-19 has certainly posed a number of threats, including financial threats and health threats to a number of individuals. Conspiracy theories help insulate one's mind from these things by creating the sense of control around these things because somebody can explain it, because somebody can understand it, because somebody can see the bigger picture, they can see and predict what might be the outcome of this, and it gives them a sense of security, even though it might be a false sense of security whenever they believe these kinds of, of things. And third, there is the desire to maintain a positive self-image. Now, conspiracy theories, by their nature, tend to create communities around the conspiracy theories. And these communities basically collaborate and talk about these kinds of conspiracy theories, what evidences they may have found. And they do this in online forums. They do this through email. They do this through chats and video conferencing and any number of things that can be found online to create these kinds of communities around this common interest to speculate about what the big bad conspiracy might be. 
Maintaining a positive self-image within the context of these kind of communities is one way of doing that. So the conspiracy theory gives somebody a community whenever they might have otherwise been isolated by other groups that are more what we might call mainstream groups or mainstream explanations for given events. The desire for the positive self-image also promotes the sense of privileged knowledge to those who hold it, and those who don't hold it don't have that privileged knowledge. So it, in a way, creates this idea that somebody is special because they have this kind of secret knowledge or this privileged knowledge that can explain the events of the world that most people would otherwise be ignorant about. Now, the first two certainly do have a lot of, uh, of grounds in COVID-19, the third one to a lesser degree, but the, the first two, the desire for understanding and certainty and the desire for control and security uh, are definitely relatable in these times when the world has been turned upside down and there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uh, out-of-control circumstances as a result of this virus added to spread about the globe and has impacted the lives of practically everybody on the planet. Covering a conspiracy theory on a podcast seems a little bit out of place, especially when it's a tech podcast. I wanted to bring this one up mainly because of its relationship to Bill Gates and also in a result of the curiosity that I have. So there are a number of takeaways that I think we can have from this as it relates to technology and the conspiracy theories that are out there in general. And the first one is obvious. Don't fall for conspiracy theories. And a couple of ways that you can do this is by recognizing them when they do occur. And almost every conspiracy theory that you find, you're going to have some kind of powerful agent. And sometimes it's called the quote deep state, or you might see words like big government or big pharma, or you will see some kind of powerful NGO like the UN and, or an agency within that, or something like the WHO, uh, or you might see something like billionaire elitists or uh, things like this thrown around to talk about these powerful agents that are conspiring against the, the masses in, in a way to control them. So first, they're going to have that aspect of it. And secondly, there's almost always some kind of cover up involved in them. So if you listen to a conspiracy theory, you're not sure, listen for some kind of uh, cover story, then sometimes they'll offer a reason like this isn't going to, you're not going to hear this in the mainstream press, or you're not going to hear this from uh, the government. You're not going to hear this from an educational facility. You're not going to hear this uh, from X, Y, or Z because uh, the conspirators are the ones that are covering this up. And they will also offer some kind of explanation to to explain away the opinions of other experts in a particular field, like doctors have been brainwashed or trained not to think about diseases in a certain way, or education does X, Y, and Z to train physicians to not want to believe X, Y, or Z about, and these kinds of um, phrases or statements are made whenever a conspiracy theory is being offered. So those two are almost always red flags for a conspiracy theory when it is being made. I think the second takeaway is to realize that uh, Bill Gates and Microsoft and uh, all these other agencies that are out there are, as far as we can tell, are not in a big conspiracy to inject somebody with some kind of microchip to control their lives. Rather, they're really just trying to uh, figure out a way to stop the spread of this virus so that people don't die, as well as address the economic concerns uh, that are being put forward by this virus. And until such a time as the virus has the ability to play out and things can go back to a normalcy, uh, that is yet 
to be determined what that's going to look like. Uh, it's best that one doesn't fall for conspiracy theories or promote those or even create those in a way that would end up detrimenting their own safety or creating a detrimenting the safety of others. Because in many cases like moon landing conspiracies, uh, Bigfoot conspiracies, flat earth conspiracies, all these things are pretty harmless for the most part. And people aren't going to uh, die because they believe in bad information about a flat earth or they believe something about a fake moon landing. But uh, if they've, start believing things about viruses and government takeovers and bad information like that, they could could potentially put the ones they love and themselves at risk and expose them unnecessarily to a virus that could result in taking their lives or something like that. So it is in these times that we really do need to push back against conspiracies and really try to help folks understand that conspiracies and other disinformation are uh, not something that we want to promote and they have consequences for those that do believe them because it, like I said, can be dangerous and deadly if somebody believes bad information and ends up getting themselves infected and ends up getting others infected and that results in deaths or considerable illness to another individual. So until next time, we'll pay attention to the news, listen to what the health officials say and wash your hands and do all these things. And next time on Tech and Fire, we'll get back to some Something that's probably more tech related and get away from disinformation and conspiracy theories. And until next time, thanks for listening. Bye.